Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Bond by Numbers. And it's a very special occasion today because it's the beginning of our third series. Thank you Woo! very much. Thank you very much for joining us. And yeah. of course, Scott over here in Scotland. And I'm joined by the BFG, Joshua Dwight Gordon Taylor, and Hello. Double, o, Double O Chapman, Jeff Chapman, both in Ottawa. <laughs> In Canada, across the pond. My brother's in Bond, across the pond, right? <laughs> Very nice. Welcome back, Bring gentlemen. Back. Bring Welcome back. back. Welcome back to what will hopefully be another exciting and involved and inspired and adventurous and any other adjectives we can throw in there? Well, I was going to say... Ambitious? I know. <laughs> yeah. You know it's going to be good. Yeah. O- well, overhyped? Overhyped, <laughs> yeah. Most definitely overhyped, yep. Wow. But no, it's uh, it's an exciting time, and it has been a couple of months from uh, a couple of months break. We're back together to uh, to launch this season with a John Glenn episode. Josh, you want to say a little thing or two about that? Yeah, today's episode is devoted to uh, the Bond director of the 1980s uh, and longtime Eon uh, crew member, John Glenn. Yeah, we were hoping to get this at the tail end of season two, but we just kind of decided that instead of shoveling it in there and rushing at a time where we all had quite a bit going on, we would save it for the start of our new season. Instead, we'll rush it today. Mm-hmm. Instead, we'll just shovel it right in there today and we'll see how we do. <laughs> Listen, guys, I think, it's, I think it's important that we start this season off by recognizing the passing of a few figures uh, close to the Bond world and close to our world particularly. Those very of close you, to our world. Yeah, very close to our world. Those of you who uh, have enjoyed our, our film reviews in seasons one and two, sorry, in season one, uh, you'll of course be familiar with the voice of Double O'Geo. Uh, Josh and my grandmother and a good friend to Jeff as well. Double O'Geo yes. passed away at the age of 95 just a couple of weeks ago now. It, it, it's a sad occasion. Um, it, you know, it, yes. it, it's not a shock in that sort of way because she she was old and um, she had a fantastic it was life. Shock but, be- because it was yeah. sudden, but at the mm-hmm. same time, it wasn't a shock in the sense that like she never suffered. You know what I mean? Yeah, never suffered. And I, you know, I'm so pleased that we got her involved in those uh, film reviews. You know, she did yes. all but all but two with us. She didn't get uh, Skyfall or Spectre, but every other film she chipped in and, and yeah, gave, her, gave her thoughts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's one sad, uh, one was, sad uh, loss. It was important and it's commendable what she was able to add for sure. And yeah. if if you're not familiar, if you're just tuning in now, or you've just joined us late, then if you uh, if you make it through one of our our film reviews, because they were quite involved and they were quite long, some of them were touching on three four <laughs> hours. I mean, we absolutely loaded them with with features. Um, you'll you'll hear her voice and her thoughts. Yes. She she was the reason why Josh and I probably developed such a strong link with James Bond um, back in the early days. We both had uh, collective and. Uh, I guess exclusive relationships with her and James Bond and she was a diehard fan so definitely sorry to see her go from a family point of view and the Bond world has lost uh, a would-be Bond girl <laughs> yeah and a big it, is, it didn't surprise me yeah in, in a way that you know she, she followed Sean Connery you know what mm-hmm, I mean mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that's true <laughs> that's a good uh, yeah. you know I'm, I'm glad that we have acknowledged her and her and her importance on this show and in our lives for and in, and in for Bond in general but also in terms of even like I think in her late in her adolescence that I think me and you really connected as individuals was through James Bond as well, Scott. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I mean, we were cousins, obviously. Right. And that does form a familial bond no matter what. But I think it's when in, in our later teenage years is when we kind of really cemented our friendship. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say it's cemented yet. I would say it's still in that pasty kind of state where we're waiting for, <laughs> wait, waiting for right. it to harden. That, you know, that, I, I spoke, that I spoke too soon. 
That's yeah. right, the paper mache. Yeah. 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 All right then. All I tease. Right, I tease, of course. But <laughs> of you're course, absolutely right. You're absolutely right, buddy. Granio was a big figure to the Bond world, uh, to our Bond world, and. Well, I'm, I'm so pleased we've got her immortalized in those early episodes. You know, uh, her opinions were never uh, entered through the back door, always front on. And it was it was great fun no. having her part of that stuff. <laughs> but it's yeah, refreshing really good. in a sense. And I would say, that, mm-hmm. I, like you were saying, for anyone who's sort of just sort of picked up our podcast or who has maybe just sort of found out about it and is, and is listening to recent episodes, you should definitely go back and, uh, if you can, and look listen to the earlier episodes, and then you'll definitely notice... Um, you know, her segments are, are very, uh, you know, mm-hmm. they're, they're unique and they're important. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's funny, Jeff, you know, because the the films that she liked the most, even though she was a diehard Sean Connery fan, did actually sit within the John Glenn years. Because I went back and listened to those interviews recently yeah. in, in preparation for this show and in preparation for um, j- just really trying to compile them in a nice little, you know, nice, nice little collection. And she really liked the... Uh, couple of the ones from the 80s that more and more was in so but of course josh double ogo was not the only one to pass and leave the bond world was she no uh in the in the more immediate bond i guess Mm -hmm. uh, universe uh we had the passing of tanya roberts a few weeks ago that's right uh that was quite a distressing affair in itself because there was a situation where she was reported dead but of course then she wasn't but then Mm -hmm. afterwards she She was was. Yeah. yeah That was a bit of a, uh, a bit of a roller coaster, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, au revoir, Stacy Sutton. Indeed, yeah, and uh, we've also lost Peter Lamont. Yes, uh, basically the, the the heir to Ken Adams' throne, essentially mm-hmm. uh, working on the on the Bond films for the past 20, 20 years or so or more. That's right, yeah, and Remy yeah. Julien, and Remy Julien, our our, our stunt driver from uh, For Your Eyes Only, a View to a Kill. Uh, the Living Daylights, uh, it's, uh, yeah, definitely an immeasurable loss there for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and a great talent uh, and whatnot. And uh, we'll get into Remy Julianne a little bit more, too, in this episode. Yeah, yes. we will, of course, because he was such a big big part of those uh, 1980s bonds. Well, look, guys, um, I, don't, I don't know how much more we, we have to go on. I think it's important, though, and, I mean, if you're happy to do this with me, I'm, I'm keen to, to give a little preview of the, the season we got coming up. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, think, right. I think that's good. Yes, just see what we have lying ahead. Yeah, in the last couple of months, although we haven't been recording any episodes, we've been reading and we've been preparing for what we hope is going to be our best season yet. Uh, last year, we had a lot of great feedback on our three non-Bond film series, so we're going to do another one of those. Yep. That's where we uh, we each select a film that is kind of connected to the world of Bond, either through some production link, some narrative point, some actor, or some uh, you know espionage intelligence wing, and we just kind of run with it. And that 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 was a lot of fun last year. We looked at Ronan, Mission Impossible, and the Iger Sanction. So yes. we'll uh, we'll have a couple more selections of that throughout the season. We're also going to be doing some deep dives into different sort of military and intelligence context episodes. Mm-hmm. You want to say something about that, guys? Uh, basically, we're going to be doing uh, a little series on the history of espionage, uh, essentially, and how it how it relates to uh, Fleming itself and the Bond world. The interesting thing about espionage um, is that it also hasn't changed. Um, there's been spies forever, and so mm-hmm. it's it, we're going to sort of sort of show different angles of espionage. Um, it's going to be fun. 
Oh, it's going to be it very is fun. very without fun. Gi- without giving too much away. We we're each going to look at our own special sort of area, uh, our own little topic within that sort of connective world, the connective tissue of the James Bond yeah. body. Yeah. I, I guess I'm going as far back as we possibly can in a uh, in a logical sense. We know spying has been around for a long time, <laughs> but the real uh, the case of modern espionage, that especially a British espionage as well, uh, is uh, pretty much begins in uh, during the. Uh, the Catholic plots of Elizabethan Europe, and that was all uh, masterminded to bring. To, well, the the bringing down of those Catholic plots was masterminded by uh, Francis Walsingham, who was a minister of Elizabeth I. And uh, I'll be getting into the whole setup of the spy network he created uh, in order to, you know, defeat all the plots against the Queen, Mary mm-hmm. Queen of Scots, and all that, and how that basically set up the future of British espionage going forwards. That's going to be awesome. I'm looking forward to that one, Josh. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to keep my topic, and I know Jeff's keen to do the same. We're going to keep that kind of under undercover mm-hmm. just now in the spirit of espionage. Exactly. We could tell yes. you, but then we'd have to kill you. But, exactly. And that's why we're going to wait, because we don't want to do that. We, we want to make sure we still have all of our fans, uh, yeah. and we'll release that information in due time. Yeah. And what intrigued me about the t- that time period, too, is how similar it is to the Cold War, because instead of like you have like the you know the U.S. block versus the Soviet or West versus East block, in in this particular time period you basically have Protestants versus Catholics, right? Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like a similar how society was structured at the time in these in these same blocks, like. Even today, it's always on one extreme or the other, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, that seems to be where the big conflicts always lie. There's always, like, this didactic conflict uh, permeating through human history. It's a curious world. And we've it's also... a bit more deeper than I thought it would be, but uh, there it is. That's okay. We'll save the, save the depth for uh, when we... You know, when we get into your episode, but we've got mm-hmm. uh, we got other things on tap, boys. We have a couple of what if episodes where we're going to use our roulette to guide us through a few sort of fantasy or role playing sort of environments. We've got um, that, well, that should be interesting. Yeah, it will be interesting. Uh, we're we're going to have a couple of interviews this season. One of which with uh, Chris Wood, and he's going to yes. uh, he's Bond on vinyl, and he he's going to come along and do a, a, another one of our score reviews with us, which is going to be mm-hmm. good fun. That's gonna be- yeah, and we've also got. So let me look at this here because I got it in front of me. Uh, <clears throat> we've got a, a book review, Jeff. Uh, you've recently uh, acquired From Russia with Love, and while Josh and I have read the book a couple of times, we're going to go through it a third time with you and uh, do a little do a little episode on that one. So that's just some of the some of the stuff we'll be bringing you in our third season, and we're also going to have a look back on a few chosen Bond films. We're going to do a little Bond Redux series, which will be quite cool with uh, different features to go along with those that will be a little different to the way we did it the first time around. So, are we going to have TikToks? Mm, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> I'll leave those up to you, buddy. <laughs> all in all, uh, what we're trying to say is stay tuned. We got lots of things going on mm-hmm. in the Bond by Numbers world. So Absolutely. And having said that, guys, and getting these pleasantries out of the way, I am delighted to be back. It's uh, so nice to hear you and to have you here. Yes. You too, man. Thanks for joining us, ladies and gents. And uh, it's time for us to get into the world of John Glenn. So, Josh, mm. you're on lead this one, buddy. We're just going to follow, support, and have a laugh. So our man, John Glenn, he was born at Sunbury on Thames, just 20 kilometers southwest of central London on the northern bank of the Thames on the 15th of May, 1932. That makes him 88 years old today. Mm-hmm. And I just listened to a podcast of him from about a, a, two years ago. 
and he seems like he has all his wits about him, and uh, he looks back still fondly and in, and in great detail on his careers. Mm-hmm. Did you was that the now, interview at, John, at James Bond Radio? There was that one, and there was also yeah, the one with one, yeah. uh, Brando Benetton as well. Was yep. also a good one too. Yeah, a uh, but the one with the James that, Bond radio was really good. Like, mm-hmm. uh, I love the the enthusiasm and uh, energy of the guys at James Bond Radio. So I'm going to be, you know, that's going to be one of my sources for this, uh, for some of the things that I'll be talking about today. So shout out to them. Absolutely. Uh, now, we know him as the 80s Bond director. He directed all five Bond films of the 80s, uh, beginning with For Your Eyes Only in 81, followed by Octopussy, A View to a Kill, the Living Daylights, and License to Kill. All five films were directed by this man and have definitely left a mark in our psyche as fans because as children of the 80s and early 90s, this is the bond that we, meaning us three hosting this Mm -hmm. show, grew up with. (laughs) That's right. Uh, His work encompasses two Bond actors, Roger Moore's final years and Timothy Dalton's only years. Uh, (laughs) His tenure Uh saw the passing of Bernard Lee in 1981 and Robert Brown replacing him as M., uh, it saw the retirement of Lois Maxwell and replacing her with Caroline Bliss. And then we have his era marking the final years of the Cold War, where concepts like detente and unilateral disarmament, though evoked as plot points in the films, reflect the coming fall of the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he negotiated those points quite well for the screen. Oh, yeah. He, yeah, he, yeah, yeah, he definitely did. He definitely indicated that it was a different world than... The world that we first came into in 1962's Doctor No, that's yeah, for sure. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, by Glenn's last Bond film, License to Kill, the KGB was replaced with a new global enemy, the South American drug cartel. Uh, it was a time of great change and upheaval of the status quo, but while Glenn's films are a testament to those times, I mean, if you want to argue that his films are dated in this fashion, wow. he was a Bond fan at heart. And knew what to give the audience in these harrowing times of Star Wars, Iran-Contra, Chernobyl, and Glasnost and Perestroika. Uh, a few hours in the dark with some sorely needed escapism. Now, Sunbury on Thames and the surrounding North Bank communities provided an able workforce for the various film studios rising up from the ground in the 30s and 40s. Shepperton, Pinewood, uh, Shepperton in particular was run at the time by the Quarter Brothers, producing British-made Hollywood films such as The Four Feathers and eventually Carol Reed's The Third Man. Uh, in 1945, a 14-year-old John Glenn was given a job as a messenger boy for the production crew at Shepperton. In an interview with the James Bond radio podcast, he comments that they were very kind to him and they fostered his growing interest in film production. Eventually, he worked his way up through the visual and sound editorial departments, giving him steady employment, employment in the post-war years. By 61, he had edited his first project, an educational documentary called Chemistry for Six Forms. His work on his pro- on this project earned him some buzz in the editing suites of the BBC and ITV, leading him directing his first television feature, an episode of the series Man in a Suitcase, in 1968. It was around this time Sounds that John painful. Glenn would... Yeah. It does sound pretty, pretty, pretty painful. Um, <laughs> Man I remember, in a suitcase. <laughs> if anyone ever watched The Americans, there's a scene with a girl in a suitcase that is a little more disturbing. Uh, but, uh, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, it was around this time that John Glenn would soon become forever associated with James Bond. This union was fomented by Peter Hunt, who Glenn had worked with in his limited capacity in the 50s at Shepperton Studio. Now, Glenn, now John Glenn says in one of the interviews I listened to that uh, 
he followed under Peter Hunt, uh, sort of, because they worked in the same studio together when Peter Hunt, when Peter Hunt was making his rise through the television and film industry of, 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 of British cinema. Mm-hmm. And eventually, of course, becoming, you know, but, but he wasn't, he didn't realize at the time that John, that uh, Peter Hunt was also paying attention to him as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so clearly he was some sort of a mentor for John. And while Peter Hunt moved on to much greater things, uh, the editor for Eon's new James Bond series starting in 1962's Dr. No, he did not forget about John. So Glenn commented how thrilled he was, you know, uh, when he went to Dr. No's first screening and he caught up at the, how he was caught up in the story and fantasy of the whole thing while at the same time uh, just, just absolutely blown away by Hunt's unique editing style. And I think this inspired him as well. Uh, before he was even part of the Bond franchise, he was a fan first. And foremost, but when Hunt was given the directing gig for 69's On Her Majesty's Secret Service, which was a troubled production, if there ever was one, with the absence of Connery, some toxicity behind the scenes, difficulties with the new star, uh, and of course a lot of bad press surrounding it, uh, Hunt called his old Shepperton protege Jean Glenn. Glenn was working with a French stunt driver named Rémy Julien at the time, while, while second unit shooting the film The Italian Job, the original Italian Job with uh, Michael Caine, mm-hmm. uh, not uh, Mark Wahlberg one. <laughs> Which uh, came some 30 years later. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Mark Wahlberg was a bit young back then, I would imagine. Just a little tyke uh, in, in Southie Boston at, the, at that time, probably. About one. <laughs> yeah. A little tyke, I guess, would work well. I don't know. One or two. Anyway... <laughs> uh, I'm now having like Ted quotes in my head right now because oh, Timothy Dalton was in Flash Gordon. Have you ever seen Ted? Oh, yeah, they talk yeah, about yeah, Flash yeah. Gordon. Oh, yeah. oh, <laughs> anyway, it's just bringing it back, bringing it back. Bringing it back. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now I got the Flash Gordon song stuck in my head. Oh yeah. So the film, the film's director, uh, Michael Carlton, uh, he reinforced Glenn to then Bond producer Harry Saltzman. And so Glenn found himself at Pinewood with Peter Hunt offering him to direct the bobsled sequence from Honor Majesty's Secret Service. And additionally, he was also asked to edit the film as well. Though at the time, OHMSS was a modest success given the issues that plagued this production, Glenn had made a very distinct first impression to Eon and the Broccoli's. Glenn continued his career in the industry. He had completed work on Richard Donner's Superman in 76 and was in Paris doing some editing for Louis Gilbert, who, of course, directed 1967's You Only Live Twice, and now he was re- and he was about to film The Spy Who Loved Me. And Gilbert, returning from a luncheon with Cubby Broccoli, informed Glenn that Cubby was impressed with the second work unit on Honor Magic Secret Service, that he wanted him to return to the franchise. So Glenn found himself with more second unit directing and editing with The Spy Who Loved Me, overseeing in particular the execution and filming of the legendary ski parachute jump sequence in Mount Asgard uh, uh, in Canada for the pre-title sequence. Mm-hmm. Now, he would continue second unit direction and, dra- and editing for 1979's Moonraker. Uh, many a Bond fan is familiar with the infamous <laughs> double-taking pigeon in the Venice gondola chase sequence. That was all John Glenn. Oh, he is the man to blame for that. <laughs> and uh, he didn't let go of the pigeons either, as, as we all know. That's right. <laughs> but Albert R. Broccoli didn't seem to mind about the pigeons. So now running the show with his wife Dana, his daughter Barbara, and stepson Michael G. Wilson, it was time to prepare for the next Bond adventure in 1981. The Fleming short story, For Your Eyes Only, was adapted into a feature film with some foundation from Fleming's Risico. Uh, Cubby needed a director and decided to promote John Glenn to that position. He was given the wheel to helm the James Bond franchise, a forward course he would hold for four more films. 
For your eyes only, with production designer Peter Lamont, second unit director Arthur Worcester, OHMSS ski camera veteran Willie Bogner, and the continuing crew of stuntmen and FX experts such as John Richardson and Derek Meddings. Uh, a strong performance from Roger Moore and a fresh down-to-earth screenplay by Richard Maybaum and Michael Wilson under Glenn's masterful auspices was a resounding success. It was no surprise that Glenn was offered to direct Octopussy and then A View to a Kill and then The Living Daylights and finally License to Kill. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's a good point you make. And <clears throat> I think that although we discussed this in our episode on For Your Eyes Only, the popular and critical response to that film was quite favorable. I think that uh, the world was ready for a more serious Bond uh, adventure. And I, I, hey, I, you know, I'm not putting Moonraker down. There's a lot of fun to be mm. had in that film. But I think that the world was ready for it and they responded in kind. I would agree with Good you. Good point. Uh, that's my thoughts exactly, Scott. Uh, it was, Free Rise only was what uh, was planned was a return back to basics, and, and that's what it did. And, and I think it, I think I think it kind of refueled the franchise for the next decade for for sure. That you know, it was funny, Josh. Good, oh, sorry, Jeff, you go ahead. No, buddy. no, go. I, I, it's funny. I uh, it really was kind of bringing it down to earth again, pun intended, uh, for um, Free Rise only, and and it really again. I think we're gonna we're gonna talk about this with uh, Glenn's style. It's like it's very straight ahead. Um, like that. That's yeah. a word I'm probably going to use a lot when I when I speak mm-hmm. to Glenn. Uh, mm-hmm. Is that it's very sort of straight ahead uh, on how his films seem to be compared to the other Bond films. Mm-hmm. But it, it like you're saying with compared Moonraker to For Your Eyes Only, it's 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 quite different, and it it is sort of a nice sort of uh, back to basics, I guess. Um, return to form, I guess. Yeah, that's the absolutely. Best way to explain it. And while those space stations were pretty cool, uh, they don't top the identigraph in Free Rise Only, that's for sure. <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, who doesn't want to list like a five-pound oh, uh, disc into a, a drive and for, for those yeah. amazing graphics? I know, right? Uh, well, you know, it's funny, man. I was watching um, License to Kill recently and just this, the CD-ROM drive that comes out of the computer. Oh, it's yeah. just so... Oh, Lighter's Computer, yeah. Oh, man, oh, Lighter's yeah, Computer yeah. is an absolute gem. And it's one of these things, isn't it, that it's dated because it's dated literally like there's nothing yes. more to it but it does strike you when you watch it as wow that is wow. a lot of plastic but you know <laughs> anyway i was yeah. thinking when the 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 woman comes in with the coffee i was like oh my mm-hmm. god she opened the door is that gonna like expose the film like oh this isn't actually <laughs> That's uh, technology, like, this isn't actually yeah. a dark room but, <laughs> yes. right, yeah. but it is a dark room and <laughs> It wouldn't like, matter in the bond diverse anyway. I was like, what's her clearance? I'm like, she's got like a lab coat, but she delivers coffee <laughs> to the guy that does basically. Yeah. Uh, um, guess who? Uh, That's basically, right, yeah. what it was, yeah. it was like MI6 is guess who in that little room. But, uh, you know. <laughs> yeah, definitely an old boys club MI6. That's for sure. Yeah. Behind the scenes, there's this guy flicking up the little plastic picture on the tray. <laughs> yeah, it's a good thing. Uh, it's a good thing that Locke's hair was one of five. <laughs> yeah, they had there's only five for, choices. Right? Yeah, I was like, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Josh. Sorry, buddy. No worries, guys. Sorry. So, uh, of course, so after License to Kill, Bomb was placed on an extended hiatus, and uh, the modest success of the film had had uh, forced uh, Eon to bring the character into some retooling between that film and Goldeneye. So Glenn found himself cut cut loose from the franchise during this time, and you know he, he returned to smaller film productions and television, where he continued to direct films like like uh, there was one called Christopher 
Columbus, a new discovery, uh, mm. which he also brought back uh, Robert Davi uh, from uh, License to Kill and uh, Michael Gotthard from Free Eyes Only, who played Locke, actually. Mm-hmm. And that was a couple of years just before uh, Michael Gotthard's passing as well, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, now, he also directed a few episodes of a, a Jerry Anderson sci-fi space series in 1995 called Space Precinct. Oh. Yeah. Do you, are and you that familiar was when the I remember it on when it was, I remember when it was on TV, but I never watched it. I just heard about it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I guess you kind of look at it in terms of like something like uh, Babylon 5, but kind of with like an English bent, I guess you could say. Okay. And right, they actually right. had very straightforward storylines like for like that were adult, even though like there was puppets and everything like that, oh, like aliens, yeah. like it was a very mature kind of show, and I think it had trouble finding an uh, audience. Yeah, it would have been competing with some pretty powerful Star Trek shows as well at the time. Yeah, yeah, like uh, Voyager was out at that point, and Next Generation had just was was Next Generation still going? Ninety seven was when Next Generation ended. That that would have been around, but also Deep Space Nine. Deep Space Nine was uh, was around at that point too, as well, and Babylon Five. Although Babylon Five was looked down upon by many people as being like the lesser show, even though it was a million times better, in my opinion. But that's just me. A million times better than what? Than Deep Space Nine. Well, you guys know Tim, Tim Prop. He just passed away a couple of weeks ago. My, my buddy over yeah. here, he ran the hockey pool with us. Anyway, uh, Tim maintained that Deep Space Nine was the best of all the Star Trek series. He liked it the best. And he was, I mean, he, this guy was a nut when it came to Star Trek. And he knew them all, encyclopedic <sighs> kind of knowledge of it. And so oh, wow. <clears throat> I'd never given Deep Space Nine any sort of credence or attention. But I might go back and, oh, really? and watch a few now. It is. It is pretty solid. It's it's different. Like it's a really rough start, but it gets yeah. after season three or four, it, it gets good. So yeah. So basically, John Glenn ended up just doing small films and TV movies and TV shows up until his retirement in the two thousands. Uh, he published a memoir called "For My Eyes Only," uh-huh. uh, which we, he talks about a lot of his history with Eon and, and whatnot and his career in general. The various podcast interviews I listened to, uh, they attest that, you know, Glenn still remains a 007 fanboy. He looks back at his time on the films fondly and continues to attend the premieres of the recent Bond films, though he was not a fan of Die Another Day, mm-hmm. or Spectre for that matter. <laughs> That's right, but given yeah. his work in the franchise, why would he be? <laughs> yeah, Josh, just to uh, piggyback on something you're saying here. The James Bond radio interview with them that Chris and Tom do that that's a Chris really and Tom good one. yes so sorry guys, guys I didn't call your names out my right. apologies it doesn't matter but uh, by all means you know uh, check out their interview with John Glenn because it, it's a good hour and it's it's really yes. good he's a very affable it, and interesting oh, guy yeah. yeah yeah it's like basically as they as they said it's like sitting down with someone like that and asking them all any question you want and getting all the answers but also having it be like a pleasant experience as well at the same time and uh it makes you respect all the work that he did in his whole career for the bond series in general so uh, okay. i i really enjoyed it and I, I recommend it to anyone really yeah yeah so i guess that's basically my rundown of john glenn's career uh I, yeah so there were some movies i you know the italian job i wasn't aware that he worked on that film uh, and Superman as well. Yeah. Uh, so I can see that he was definitely a useful guy in the industry when it comes to, uh, you know, second unit directing for sure, making sure those stunt sequences are, you know, the chef's kiss, so to speak. And uh, he was like a crewman's director, I guess is how he would describe him. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of leaning into now when we're going to talk about his style. Well, you know, uh, I yeah, also I think... Th- yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say that... To me, second unit direction is so important as that sort of like uh, cutting your teeth direction. And there's no way that 
Cubby Broccoli and the production team, or you know the 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 key principles behind the production team. There's no way that they could watch the Spy Who Loved Me footage that ski parachute jumped and think that hey, this is a guy that we can't trust. You know, like he's going to yeah, catch moments. He's going to be able to deliver these big action moments, and he went on and did it in every one of the films. He really did. I think what kind of made me really sort of respect second unit and sort of when you have like a large production and you, it, it's quite an art to be able to get the sort of like the world and sort of what the main director wants. And then you have to sort of piece it together in, in your own sort of microcosm in the spot that you're in. Mm-hmm. And, and so that made me really understand the importance of, of second unit directing. And if you look at uh, here with, um, with Glenn and, and he did a lot of second unit directing and it just shows it, it's probably a little more uh, difficult because you have to sort of you're your own world and you have to kind of make sure that you put what you're doing in a specific spot with the rest of the feel of the film together so that's difficult but obviously um, Glenn is very good at it and he had a lot of uh, experience as a second unit director mm-hmm. so that's quite a feather in his hat hat when um, you know they uh, they asked him to, to to be a full director for those other films the mm-hmm. other four um bond films but obviously um it just shows how important second unit directing is yes uh, so you, anyway, that's you just, guys know just, just to connect that point up with something josh that you mentioned with his relationship to peter hunt um, he was a second unit director on Gold, that 1974 film starring uh, Roger Moore. Roger Moore. And also I, on uh, Big Wild Geese with Roger Moore as well. That's right, which came a little bit later. Um, but while he was director uh, under Peter Hunt's direction for Gold, um, one of the interesting things I gleaned from Roger Moore's biography. Now, I don't know if this was the first time they met. Chances are they would have met before this, you know, in, in some capacity. But they really struck up a good friendship. In you know on on the set of this film 1974, yes. they, and that's kind of that's obviously something that really worked for both actor and director when they got to work together on the Bond films. But there was an interesting story Roger Moore spoke about while he was in South Africa during uh, during the production of that film. Apparently, um, because of the restrictions that were in place for fuel and petrol, right? Because you know we've got the energy crisis going on and all that sort of oh, stuff. Yeah. Um, while he was second unit director, John Glenn drove over 250 miles to ensure that the team had enough petrol and fuel for all the vehicles. Wow. And so he just went and filling up kegs of this stuff, you know, and picking yeah. it up where he could. I mean, 250 wow. miles, that, that's, no, that's, no, that's no trip to the grocery store. I mean, that's yeah, a no. proper trek. But yes. apparently he was doing this all over South Africa to make sure that the, uh, you know, the, the, the film had what it, uh, what it needed in terms of energy and fuel and stuff. I, I just think it's a simple point, but yet this is a type of effort that endears you to other people and yeah. which really shows your commitment to being in the industry and doing the things that are going to help the yes. production. And as the Bond community knows, and as the Bond producers know, you hear it in all of the in in all of the sort of uh, director comments and in all of the voiceovers and all of the, the production notes. These stories work best when everybody cares about the story and john glenn is a story first director as i'm sure you're going to get into he's not interested in giving an actor uh you know doing something like the scenes that he cuts are scenes that are superfluous even if they're great acting moments if it doesn't support the narrative it doesn't matter and he, he works he works so well as this this kind of like organizer of people who want to do right by the story that that yeah. the, imi- the image of him driving around in a truck filling up barrels of fuel because the film needs it it's kind of kind of representative of the way he would treat you know his own projects when he came to do the bond work 
That's a good call. As a great anecdote, Scott, uh, well, it's, definitely it's supports Roger Moore, my, it? my, yeah. my look at his style. Well, it, it's a good point that you brought up. And the film that he enjoyed working on the most in his entire career was actually Octopussy. Yeah, okay. that's right. Yeah. So style. So this is. I'm going to give you the points that I have about what I, I see as his mm-hmm, style. Please. And then we can, yeah. Of course. We'll just talk so, about some can, highlights and then from the we films. Can, and then we can parse it down and we'll get to talk to highlights and everything. Cool. So I would mark his style kind of, it's a very straightforward, precise and to the point kind of filmmaking. There's precision. There is a visible technique on screen for sure. His career in film editing, both audio and visual, allows him to visualize complete scenes before he films them. He even mentions in interviews that how he draws the storyboards up for each scene beforehand. Mm-hmm. And that is the work of someone who worked in the editing suites, you know, like that's yeah, someone totally. who knows how films work. What you're going about, you know, him doing that, driving around, getting that fuel in, in South Africa. Glenn is a team leader working with all aspects of the film crew. He knows how to film and edit an action sequence. He's not talent focused. This is why his action sequences are always stand out. And, and that goes into the sense he's not an actor's director. Despite complex stories that he has given, he tends to use the actor's performances as part of a greater whole. And thus there is, there is an emotional disconnect at times. Uh, but that's not what he's going for. He's going for for telling a story. He wants to get to the next frame of the comic book. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's what he wants to do. His straightforward style of direction, zoom-ins and zoom-outs, sometimes shaky 360 pans. He utilizes everything in the frame. He films on location. It provides a heightened documentary style. Vincent Camby of the New York Times said that For Your Eyes Only is not the only is only the best series by a long shot. It's a slick entertainment uh, that is consistently comic tone, even when the material is not. Uh, just an example of uh, someone talking about um, John Glenn's style. Filmmaker Robert Bresson, uh, French filmmaker Robert Bresson, I should say, uh, felt about Fear Eyes only that uh, it, it filled him with wonder because of the cinema- cinematographic writing. I guess what he's saying is, is that the writing of the scene was also in terms of how the camera would be placed. So it's all about the technical aspects that, Glenn pulls into his work uh, and less of a stylized kind of look that I guess that we got, you know, in the Terrence Young, Guy Hamilton years. You have Terrence Young, a very nuanced kind of style. Uh, you got the Ken Adams sets adding a kind of hyper-realism to everything that you're, you're much more escapist. And even though there was elements of humor in John Glenn's films, uh, his films to me feel like almost like somewhat documentary on when he films on location. It has a very gritty, realistic style yeah. that was very typical of British filmmakers in the 70s and and American filmmakers too in the 70s and 80s uh, such as like you know like Frankenheimer for example like I find their styles very similar yeah Sidney Lumet Sidney Lumet yeah yeah Yeah, that's a good example for sure yeah, so Glenn, he follows in the footsteps of Hunt Uh, he demonstrates a mastery of technical skill in terms of directing, filming, and editing uh, his professional gestation period was in the editing suites of Shepperton, as we know. So this is a man who understands the basic fundamentals of the aesthetic of film, both during production and post-production. You know, this is not someone who comes from a producer's approach to filmmaking, seeing things on a studio mm. level or in terms of marketing. He's there to tell a story and get that story told. Uh, he's someone who can deliver a taut, precise stunt sequence or explosion or car crash, seeing everything in terms of a storyboard and how it would be rendered in the montage once the film has been cut to print. This is someone who spent time working with foreign nationals, stuntmen, electricians, carpenters, cameramen, first and foremost, before he rubbed the elbows with actors and producers. Someone who worked his way up from the bottom of the industry to the first 
first rungs of the Eon hierarchy to supervising five films in a row in the 80s, and it shows on screen. There's no sense of artistic expression in Glenn's work. You don't get those lingering establishing shots of Young or the inventive framing right, and plotting yeah. of Hamilton, who mix wit and humor with the pyrotechnics. You don't get a fantastical backdrops, uh, courtesy of Ken Adam. Uh, you know, there's no underwater base for a supervillain. Instead, you get a real-world place like an old monastery atop a mountain, a Delhi marketplace, a circus, the Golden mm-hmm. Gate Bridge, a Russian air base in Afghanistan, a drug smuggler's yacht. Uh, Glenn's films always play it straight in tone, even if there are moments of humor in the script. Bond seems to exist in the heightened reality of the 80s, captured on film, making his way through our world at that time. The Bond trope of fetishizing the exotic continues in the Glenn films, but I find that it makes an effort to establish the culture of the locale. In Free Eyes Only, both visually and audibly, we feel we are in Greece. In Octopussy, on location shooting in India, we are actually in India. There's a real-world feel to the proceedings that makes the Glenn films, for me, very familiar. Unfortunately, it's contrasted when the more humorous aspects of the screenplay are brought forth. Uh, in, in, and that also depends on the scripts as well, particularly uh, Octopussy and, and um, A View to a Kill. Because it can be quite jarring and take you, to, uh, take you out of the immersion with a more, when a more stylized approach works better with that kind of writing or, those, or that kind of story. So, so humorous sequences sometimes in a Glenn film end up being a bit more uh, like a parody instead. Uh, Glenn has said Octopus... Do you mean you feel as though the humor in the Glenn it's, films kind of drops a bit? It kind of falls flat? Yeah, so, so some yeah. of them do, I, I find it. But it depends on the screenplay. I find the humor delivered, for example, in For Your Eyes Only or in, I would say, in uh, The Living Daylights and The License to Kill, the humor in there. Uh, I think this, I think Dick Maybaum worked, the, worked them in very well. And that kind of style of story supports Glenn's style of filmmaking, in my opinion. Whereas I found with like Octopussy, you get that kind of same kind of style of filmmaking, but there's also all kind of ridiculous elements in those stories that mm-hmm. I find like I just don't I just don't find they mesh for me, and that's why when it comes to like the Roger Moore films and particularly the Glenn films, that I find Octopussy and uh, A View to a Kill are my least favorite of of that period. Uh, even though they have good individual moments themselves, like some fantastic sun sequences, but of course that's all Glenn. That's what he's best at, right? Mm-hmm. Um. One person was talking about the disconnect uh, emotionally that occurs, and that was actually Pauline Kael, the legendary film critic. Uh, she says, Glenn stages of slaughter scenes so apathetically that the picture itself seems disassociated. Now, this is an opinion. This isn't my agreement, but think of the scene in The View to a Kill when Zorin and uh, Scorpion, Scarpine are, like, gunning down all of the main strike mm-hmm. workers in the mine. Like, oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it's just yeah. an incredibly violent, awful scene that feels kind of like a bit juxtaposed against, you know, a, a lot more lighter-hearted moments, I guess you could say, or more PG moments, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Uh, like baking, like baking a quiche. Like baking a quiche, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and Kale also points out too that said, "I don't think I've ever seen another movie in which racehorses were mistreated and the director failed to work up any indignation." If Glenn has any emotions about what he puts on screen, he keeps them to himself. But then you have, like, Jenna Mazin of New York Times. She says, you know, while she praises the supporting characters of The Living Daylights, she criticized the long runtime and noted the direction by Glenn has colorful but perfunctory style that goes with this territory, so typical of the spy film that works well, of course. But she says it's, a- it's adequate, but it's also uninspired. Now, that just sounds like an elitist comment as well, I suppose, from a film critic, but a bit snobby, of course. But I, I can see where she's coming yeah, from in that I sense. I can too, particularly yeah. if uninspired equals 
just, you know, support the story, support the story. Don't get into your own navel gazing. Don't try to be an artistic, you know, whatever. Yeah, if, exactly. If, if she reads uninspired as just as no, no flash. Yeah. Just <laughs> yeah. straightforward. Yeah. Exactly. Jeff. Yeah. I, I can see where she's coming from with yeah, that respect. That yeah. Sense. Because he, he doesn't have uh, the interest it would seem to do what has been done, you know, under the wings of Terrence Young with, with Connery and having those moments of this is bond, feel my style, you know, sense it yes. through what I eat, through what I wear. Like he's, he's much more, he's much more drive ahead. Like I, I know we're going to use that a lot, but that's, that's oh, really yeah, it. That, it's I narrative that, first. Yeah. Like we were saying, I think that comes from his sort of editor first director second. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. That's a good point, Jeff. Editor first, director second. I like that. That's a good way to put, describe it. And uh, Jack Kroll, um, this is for his review in License to Kill, mm-hmm. uh, which he described as a pure, rousingly entertainment action movie. Uh, he was mixing his appraisal of Dalton, uh, who he said was a fine actor who hasn't yet stamped Bond with his own personality. I kind of agree with that a little bit. Dalton is trying too much to like method acted Bond from Fleming without kind of putting his own style or charm to it, I guess you could say. Um but about John Glenn in particular, Kroll says, Glenn is the Busby Berkeley of action flicks, and his chorus line is the legendary team of Bond stunt persons who are at their death to find best here. So again, that encapsulates John Glenn's style, in my opinion, is that this is a guy who's the master of the action sequence. Yeah. He threads these action sequences, these set pieces together to form the story that he is, that he is uh, commissioned to tell. And and he works with a crew that does that, actors included. Everyone is an equal on a, Glenn, on a John Glenn set. They are all moving parts to tell the story. And you know what? To heck with you if you're not if artistically stimulated by what's going on on screen. That's not their objective. Their objective is to make a fun action movie. And they provide right, escapism. Yeah. And that's what John Glenn was all about. Yeah. In, and that's, what, that's what, what he delivered, in my opinion. Yeah. I think you're right. And this idea of being a team leader is is really important i mean filmmaking is collaborative right i mean the best film have to be collaborative you need to know how to delegate and you need to have trust and you need you need to let the people under you do you know what they can do best but one one example that i gleaned from the living daylights um is when glenn was talking about one of the costume designers uh, or one of the assistants of the costume designer who, emma portius assistant i'm assuming yeah it, it could have been yeah she she had said something to the effect of well you know if you give me just like a bunch of money, I can go across into the markets and just get a bunch of real clothes. Like we don't have to approximate what the Mujahideen are wearing. You know, I can just get real stuff from the market. So he gives her this wad of cash and she crosses the border, collects the stuff and brings it back to uh, Britain. Essentially, she oh. brought it back to Britain for the uh, the studio shots. And it, it's just that, that type of trust and that type of, yeah, go ahead and do that. I mean, cinema history is filled with those types of relationships. But I think Glenn was particularly good at not not kind of flexing an auteur muscle and instead saying, yeah, go ahead. You can make this better. Go make it better. You, you know, yes. you got a way to help me. Then no let's ego. do it, you know? Yeah. Or the ego may be, may be directed in different ways. Yeah. It looks like he didn't really have much of an ego. Like, Hey, this is my thing. I'll tell you what to do and when to do it. But he was like, Hey, if you got a good idea and I mm. appreciate that, go for it. Like, I'm okay with that. Mm. Um, so I think, if it's going to make the project better, gonna, yeah. exactly. Mm. Even though he's in charge, he kind of left that that hat at the door, and he's like, "Look, oh, yeah, yeah. you know, if it's for the benefit of, of the film, let's do it." And that's what it shows here. Like, you know, he'll go out on his own and lead by example and drive 250 miles and get and and, and get the petrol or the gas uh, and mm-hmm. do these kind of things. So it, it shows sort of mm-hmm. like the kind of person that he is. He's very driven, pun intended. Uh, <laughs> you know, I think John Glenn had a lot of fun too making these films because. When he was doing um, 
The Spy Who Loved Me, he and Roger Moore got together and they created a wanker tape, is what he called it, a wanker tape of outtakes and sort of gaffes that he, you know, yeah. like, one of the things spy he Spy Who Loved in, Me in particular, yeah. yeah spy Who Loved Me I think I know where you're going, I think I know where you're going with this, yes. Well, he made, he made, makes fun of Ken Adam, um, particularly <laughs> when Ken Adam's going around showing like the set, like apparently they, they voiced over, you know, Ken Adam saying, I did this and I did this and I did this and this is mine and I did that and I created that and it just sort of smoking his cigar probably as he's walking walking through the set most likely but i think he had a lot of fun with with the uh you know the rap parties and the crew and he was a very grateful director in terms of uh the collaborative effort and well uh, at least that's that's the feeling i get from what i read other people say about him yes yes like absolutely like it seems like cubby like at the time was like you know the the father figure of the entire eon production or that's how it's like portrayed anyways mm-hmm. you know that whole yeah, story in the, the spider love me set yeah. where he got spaghetti for everybody you know what i mean that's which right, even yeah. influences the whole godfather imagery not to mention his italian <laughs> background of course uh but john glenn seems like not a father figure but he was like the the really helpful uncle i guess he wanted to make sure everyone was all together and working in, in that sense right like <sighs> yeah. he had like an, an avuncular um sway over over the entire crew and everyone looked up to him and he looked after everybody but he also worked on he also worked side by side with them as well like there wasn't any sort of like disconnect between him and the crew whatsoever you know like i mean he reported to broccoli and and whatnot Mm -hmm, and michael g wilson but at the same time he also they trusted him enough that he would be able to do things on his own and and run these things a great example of the synergy of john glenn and his crew is when they were making free eyes only and it came up that Carol Bouquet uh, had a like a sinus problem where she couldn't film scenes underwater. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. So if you look at the sequences where you see Carol Bouquet underwater on the bottom of the sea, they were not underwater. Like they that they were completely dry in that whole sequence. Like for example, even the scene where like at the temple where you see Melina and the bubbles coming out of her and is everything like that, right? Mm-hmm. How do they make? They use fans cool. to uh, yeah. blow her hair back and stuff. And then John Glenn explained how that, like on the on the print on the first print that they, they shot of those scenes, they would put X's on their mouths, like with marker, and then they would hand it over to Derek Meddings, who has always been this miniaturist guy. That's what he's known for, Derek Meddings. So what Derek Meddings did was, following Glenn's instructions, is that he basically took the sequence and filmed it, inserted the bubbles. Uh, so, so they overlaid on top of it, so the bubbles would come out of her mouth, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And then what will happen is what he did then was he filmed it through through a tank of water. So uh, that's how he was able to give the illusion of them being underwater that the, the entire time when they in fact were not. So that's well, pretty th- darn I cool. They, I thought they added the bubbles to the the stock film afterwards, and they slow mode. Yes. They slow mode. The, they, they slow mode, but they also the filmed through a water tank as well. Cool, cool. Yeah. Now, uh, Josh, another story that Roger Moore talks about is obviously the friendship he, that he struck with Glenn during during the films. But in 2001, so this is relatively recently. I mean, it's not really, but it's 20 years ago. Um, yeah. Roger Moore met with John, uh, John Glenn in Luxembourg because Moore had taken a bit part in a film. And John Glenn was in Luxembourg doing The Point Men, the Christopher Lambert The Point film. Men. That was his last film. Yeah, and they were both working on separate films, but close together. So they went out and just basically dined and wined pretty much whenever they could get together. Yeah. Which I guess is a testament to your, you know, friendship, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. What's interesting, though, is that like Glenn was saying is that like he wanted Timothy Dalton to appear in his Christopher Columbus movie. But Dalton got involved at the beginning, but then he turned down. And Glenn feels that he had an argument with uh, Timothy Dalton at the end of License to Kill. 
and uh, and he felt that Dalton didn't want to work with him again after that. And but he never he, he he never he was never was able to find out about it. Yeah, mm-hmm. why? He believes it's because of that argument. Whatever whatever the argument was about, he's never really espoused it, and to my knowledge, anyway. Interesting. Uh, that would that would be yeah. fly on the wall of that one. And and one thing that James Bond radio interview talked about too, regarding which is what I thought you were going to go into. You were talking about the Winker tape that Glenn and <laughs> uh, Moore put together for Spy Who Loved Me. Is that during the sequence where Bond kills Strongberg? You know how Strongberg had like the missile launcher underneath his uh, ta- on, on the dining table or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Well, what happened is that Roger actually they actually used fire, like they actually used like a real prop gun kind of thing that actually shot flame. And what happened is that Roger got his backside on fire, and it was a very small burn, small fire because he was wearing protective covering or something. But anyways, he was like chasing the stu- the special effects guy all around this all around the set apparently, and all of this is on film about him you know, on fire like chasing. Oh, uh, the guy and John Glenn says it's like uh, uh, that's definitely a for your eyes only situation. No one is that that will never see the light of day. That's what he said. <laughs> the, that's funny. Well, guys, yeah. why don't we why don't we transition then into talking about some of our favorite Glenn moments? Whether we go through the films one by one by one, or whether we just yeah. kind of share, you know, we just uh, shoot shoot the breeze a little bit about him. One thing I just I just wanted to add, sort of just how we were talking about how he was on the set and how he mm-hmm. was okay. I think it's because of how he started because when he started on early 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 films as like a, a teenager he kind of worked his way up right it's almost like if you're doing construction it was almost like an apprentice or or, or even yes like a journeyman so he, yeah a journeyman that kind of thing and so he he, he was like you know un, unaccredited like a kid just working handing things out and he worked his way up so i think maybe maybe that's why he was so sort of he wanted to help out, and he would go the extra mile, pun intended. Yeah, more uh, more driving. populist. And, yeah, and, and you know he was okay with this kind of you know like hey if this is good for the film do it. And he was a little more maybe he was a little more approachable as a person and as a director. Uh, yeah, may, maybe not, but that's just the way. It seems no, I to think me. that just, I think that uh, follows maybe, for sure. You know that that added it just sort of added to his personality and his character as a person, and it probably made a difference to how he he viewed. Um, the film industry and and how to make a film and how to and sort of how to wrangle in the talent and the crew as as one entity maybe I'm mm. just I'm yeah, I think I, I think you're absolutely me, right as an that observation is a... might 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 work yeah oh, totally is there any indication guys uh, that you know of either from his autobiography or any other sources to to suggest that John Glenn was like in his personal life, that John Glenn was was like uh, Terence Young. You know, he enjoyed the expensive this and the expensive that, and the you know the the gala parties here and there, and and the fashion. Is I, I don't get that read off him as a director. No, I I, I never got anything like that. Like you never hear stories about him wine and dining. Like you hear stories about, From for photos, example, I don't see him being a fashionista. I'm gonna, I'm not gonna lie. No, no, not so much. <laughs> no. He seems like the kind of guy. He seems like the kind of guy that would would prefer to have a beer in the pub more so yeah. than going to a swinky party. That's I think to you're me. Right. Like, I, mean, I can that's see. Feeling, I can see him. Yeah. yeah, I can see him sitting down with like even Roger Moore. I can see him and Roger Moore and uh, I, I don't know like uh, Richardson and uh, Michael. Caine. What's his name? Michael Caine or someone just sitting down together having mm-hmm. a, having a beer, you know, at a pub. Like I totally feel that that's the John Glenn kind of way of, of, and of I, partying. You know, looking at the photos, I feel like John Glenn would have. Like he had a couple of sort of like naval like caps, you know, like literally mm-hmm, like a hat mm-hmm. with like a a naval ship and and, and aviators and like a just like a, did, a, yeah. a a shirt. And where I would see, like, I would I would expect like that's how he would look in most most 
you know, places he would go, then you'd probably mm-hmm. have Roger Moore with, uh, you know, a cravat and a, and a blazer and a shirt and a cigar <laughs> yeah. and something like that. But, uh, you know, that's that's uh, that's that's what I would picture, anyways, for their little meetings or, or uh, tete tetes or, or just, you know, just having a drink. I'm just thinking too is that like he was 14, he was 14 in 1945 when he yeah. signed up with uh Shepperton as a, yeah. as a messenger boy. So that means that he was in his like probably he was like only a couple of years before he would have probably been like you know sc- scared for his life during the blitz. Absolutely. So this mm-hmm. is someone who probably venerated heroes, you know, that saved their country, saved his country in this situation. So working on like a something like a James Bond film and and people like that. I can kind of see I can see how he is more of like a, a fan in his own way than most producers or or more more I guess more Hollywood-esque directors would kind of detach themselves from it a little bit, you know? Like mm-hmm. I, I I think he's someone who is very important to him at his core uh, and he loves what he's doing. Like even in the interviews he says back like I I have so many lovely memories I'm, I, and I look back at them and they're very precious to me and I love talking about them and that's kind of the attitude that you don't see a lot of uh, more professional or more Hollywood kind of interviews are like there's always a sort of like this grandiose kind of like well back in the day we did this and we did mm-hmm. that and to me he looks back as if he's referring to like family memories almost you know what I mean yeah there's a tenderness right. to think, his reflection uh, I, yeah and I yes. think, again I think that that does it I think it does probably attest to the fact that he was so young and he kind of like literally grew up Going through the industry at that at that mm-hmm. golden era of of, of cinema, mm-hmm. uh, so I think that probably I think is a big sort of uh, example of, of his character as a person, and also it does show. I, I, again, that's what I'm saying. I think that those early early uh, parts to his 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 career uh, getting into the industry really sort of solidifies mm-hmm. how he acted later on with. I think just like the legacy that the 80s or the Glenn era has too. So in this period, you know, the villains, they're ambitiously complex. At the same time, they're mundane. You have like drug smugglers, ambitious Soviets, corrupt Soviets, with some exceptions. You have Zorn. It's the closest thing to a traditional Bond villain of all five of the Glenn films. You got Um, double agents as well. Yep. Double agents, yep. Uh, the women are kind of ahead of their time as well. You have yes. Melina, the Avenger, Octopussy, the ruthless businesswoman and international mm-hmm. smuggler, Stacy, the stubborn heiress protecting her family legacy from Zorin's big corporate threat. You have uh, Kara, the pawn cellist, caught up in the middle of a terrible situation, and acts as someone in her situation would. And then you have Pam Bouvier, oh, yeah. uh, a former CIA pilot turned information uh, turned uh, informant, sorry, against the uh, drug cartel. Uh, who could clearly take care of herself despite the screenplay kind of letting her down in that fashion mm-hmm. uh, in, a, in a more modern comparison. Uh, then in Lupi, she's a gangster Maldo Sanchez, yeah. but she's also an unapologetic survivor as well. Uh, you get the evolution of a Bond villain and Bond girl tropes in the Glenn films, in my opinion. It kind of starts in that in that era. Josh, and um, you, you said something, buddy, I, and I picked this up on one of the episodes. You said that... that- there's this, this triple villain trope that kind of goes, no, maybe not a trope, but there's like a triple yeah. villain thing going on through the Glenn films. You, you mentioned For Your Eyes Only, Octopussy, and The Living Daylights all have this sort of triple villain thing going on. Now, do you see that yeah. as something that Maybaum and Wilson wrote into the 80s scripts? Or do you see that as something yes. that John Glenn kind of likes? Like, I mean, how do you read that? Well, if John Glenn had input on Wilson and Maybaum's scripts, yeah. All I, all I know is that I think after Moonraker, they wanted to bring Bond down to Earth. They wanted to get away, I guess, from the megalomaniacal 
old tr- tropes of like the they want to get away from Blofeld, they want to get away from the Strongberg and Drax archetypes, mm-hmm. and I think they wanted to kind of just have um, a series of villains that you would you know like more like uh, villain soup, yeah, a villain <laughs> soup, or even kind of of more like henchmen with depth, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's what they want to do. Henchmen with depth. Maybe that's the better way of articulating it, yeah. buddy, because these henchmen aren't single file. They're, they're kind of woolly and they're kind of uh, nebulous, aren't they? Yeah, you want more of them too. Like, I love how, how for example, like Michael Gothard's, Michael Gothard's lock in Free Eyes Only, he has, does not say one line of dialogue in the entire film, but he is like terrifying in that movie. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, you like, know, with, with Locke as well, this was something else that I found quite interesting um, when I was rereading Moore's autobiography. Now, I mean, we, we all know that Moore didn't think that his bond would knock that car over the cliff, right? In oh, yeah. Only. oh yeah. Yes, but it yes, was yes. it was John Glenn who was adamant. They had a bit of a disagreement about it. It was John Glenn who was adamant right. in his direction yeah, yeah, yeah. that Bond should be ruthless in this moment because, you know, he killed his friend and blah, blah, blah. Not that mm-hmm. Ferrara was really that well produced in, in the story as a friend. <laughs> but, Luigi. <laughs> yeah, Luigi. Yeah, yeah. But I, I thought this interesting. So like Morris, like, yeah, well, okay. We, we, we agreed that I would just give it a little kick, right? <laughs> but uh, yeah, I also don't think it was the reason. I don't think it was just Ferrara that Locke died. That was for Liesel as well, who he like brutally sure, yes, like yeah. ran over with the dune yeah. buggy, right? Yeah. But anyway, my, my point is, I think if, if uh, Glenn had sort of got his way and didn't meet with Moore a little bit there, he would have had a, a scene maybe more uh, in, maybe more reflective of something we might have found in The License to Kill, you know, something a little more harsh. But I think yeah. Roger Moore was right to stick up there and say, this kind of doesn't go with the trajectory of my, my, my play. I can be yeah. serious and I can be cold, but I don't want to be, you know, ridiculous and out of out of character because it would have been out of character for Moore's Bond to do that. What do you guys think about that scene? That I mean, I know we talked about yeah, it when we reviewed ca- the, the film. The car kick? Yeah, the car kick. What do you think? I I liked it, but it, it does seem like it doesn't fit the Moore Bond, but at the same time, I'm... Craig, 100%. Right. Oh, for sure. Well, Connery Craig, even. Craig would Connery pick up even. the car and throw it. <laughs> he tried. Yeah. <laughs> Connery or Dalton, definitely. Uh, more, I think for that movie, it worked for more, but I can see why he didn't like it. I think they kind of, the scene, and no pun intended, or maybe pun intended, it balances things out because he throws the dove in there and the car is already tipping off. So the car was going to fall in a moment. And would it be more cold-blooded if Bond just watched him fall without helping him or or just or kicking him? So they kind of had a choice in that sequence, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Or he kind of had a choice in that sequence. Does he just let the things slowly slip uh, yeah, away? There you and go. Yeah. Is that more sadistic or him kicking it and and so that doesn't prolong or, the guy's anxiety? Yeah, exactly. Is, is Bond, <laughs> is Bond give, uh, being merciful and just getting it over with? <laughs> mm-hmm. But even the way that's captured too, like because it, it's a it's a long shot, isn't it? It's not a close-up of Moore kicking the car. You do see it from inside the car looking at Roger Moore, but then when the car actually goes over, you see it from a long shot, right? Yes. So it's not like the focus is so much on the foot and the action of the, the character doing it. It could be construed as, oh, well, just kind of accidental, you know, but not really accidental. No, I guess he does, he does lift up his leg, doesn't need to do it. So. Oh, yeah. He does, he does. It's interesting, yeah, though, because both director and actor talked about that as a scene that they wanted something a little different from. So um, let's talk about some other moments, guys, from, from Glenn's, Glenn's career yeah. there or Glenn's time mm-hmm. with Bond. What did you think of the um, the C two car chase? I mean, it was one of my favorite car chases. You know, the Citroen C two. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. I really like that's, that. That's a great scene because it showed how Glenn was able, when he had great, when, when the writing was there, that he, he delivered humor in the action and wasn't parody. Like, yeah. that's, the scene works so well because I think of what you expect in that sequence. Like, well, where's my, you expect Bond to get away in, in, a, in a fast car, a fast like, car. In, a, in a nice looking car. <laughs> I think it was just a great example of uh, subverting expectations in a way that worked well exactly. with the story. Exactly. Because you could literally picture, like, Bond fans sitting, either sitting in a theater or watching it and just sort of like, oh, here we go, car chase, like, having a sip of a beer or whatever they're they're drinking, mm-hmm. right? And then all of a yeah. sudden it blows up. You're like, well, what now? And you're like, are you kidding me? He's gonna, <laughs> yeah. They're going to drive this lemon, literally? It's so good, isn't it? I really and, like and, that scene. At first you're like, oh, no, because then it has that kind of like silly kind of like comical music, like almost mm-hmm. like you're like, oh, look, yep. it's it's going to be like a, a, Keystone a Benny Cops. Hill thing or Keystone Cops, right? Yeah. yeah. And then you're like, oh, this is actually good. Like, I mean, there is obviously humor to it, right? Like, you know, they kick the car over and all that kind of stuff. Um, but uh, but it, it really works. Like, it, it's a really... Bill Connie's score was also a good encouragement to that sequence, too. Yeah, exactly. I mean, obviously, yeah. the, music is, is, the music is very important because it, it would give the wrong uh, intention and feel to the car chase. So, I mean, at first, because honestly, if they had kept with that style of, like, goofy music... When you first see the car, and, and Bond's like, uh, really? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but but going forward, like, it's a great chase, and, like, yes, there's humor, but it's exactly the right mix of humor, action, and Bond in that scene, right? It feels like a important. scene that Roger Moore would really be proud of, which is why I, yeah, and that kind of I how I identify with John Glenn. I think that they both... Like they both got the the right flavor there, and the chemistry between Melina and Bond is excellent. Like they just literally they just meet, but you could see like, mm-hmm. yeah, I you know you, I could totally see them in that car and like it'll work. Yeah, and, uh, and also just sh- it actually it's also another good indication of, of showing, uh, you know, her strength as a character, especially also she just saved Bond, but also, you know, she's like I can drive, and then like he eventually does drive, but she's like, you know let me do it and so she you know it, it shows sort of uh, another good example of like a strong female character sort of uh, portrayal mm-hmm. in that sense mm-hmm. Glenn gives also a sort of he gives a great balance and particularly in Fear Eyes Only of those sequence of those chase sequence of those action sequences like you have you know like you want to start out a little bit light with the meeting of him and they kind of a mute cute I guess you could say with him and Molina in that yep. sequence and then you have some fun and some goofy moments even in that ski chase in Cortina yep. especially with like the hockey se- the hockey scene oh, sequence yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you build up and then then you get you know like the raid in Albania and then the, of course we we talked about the cliff scene and then you get the underwater sequences on the St. George's, the keel hauling scene pulled right from Live and Let Die, the novel. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the fantastic St. Cyril sequence at the end, yep. too. Oh, yeah. yeah, so, uh, you know, you know when, when, when Bond is climbing uh, the, the, the Meteora rock there. Yeah, that, that feels like some like a really excellent blend of first and second unit direction, that St. Cyril. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. You can 100%. Really get the, al- the alchemy there comes through. You know, it's funny thinking about Glenn. Like, maybe this is more of thinking about 80s films. So you guys can chip in and tell me if I'm right or wrong on this. But, you know, if you think about the animals, like the, just the animals that are in the movies, 
Now, Lots some of, of wrangling animal, for, the, for those movies. <laughs> I know, right? But some of these animal appearances kind of send up the moments where we see Bond in them, like the tiger or the tarantula, <laughs> you know. But then you've got, like, eels and you've got leeches and octopi and maggots and sharks. Like, was it yeah. an 80s thing or was it is it a Bond thing that maybe was amplified under Glenn's reign? I think it was because when I think of the, the the early Bond films, I remember like all of the octopi and as you said, and the maggots and stuff. And there's some really ickly crawly stuff in that in the 80s. But then I also think of Temple of Doom as well, which had some pretty gross mm-hmm. stuff in there sure, too. Yeah. Re- did, remember yeah. that scene when him and Willie and them were and <laughs> yeah. the short round? It was like that uh, the chamber was closing in. It was full of all these centipedes and mm-hmm. bugs and stuff like that. Yeah, like yeah. That, that's 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 ridiculous. Like to think of one square foot of oh. brick space oh. being inhabited by that many variety, that much different <laughs> different stick bugs and millipedes yeah. and crickets and everything was in there. It's yeah, a little bit silly now that you think of it. But yeah, a little bit silly for yeah. sure. And a lot uh, but, of it gross. Uh, <laughs> a lot of it gross. Yeah, I, I think Josh, you've already mentioned it, but with respect to octopusy. Um, I think the location shooting in India is just awesome. It's one of my favorite things. And I get the feeling like Glenn's really, really comfortable on location. He doesn't go there with an auteur's mind or or kind of purpose. He goes there with with this idea to just soak in the environment and let it linger a little bit, you know? And is that because he was a second unit director, so he would be told to go to different places? He's just more comfortable doing that? I think you're right, Jeff. I think he leans into those experiences. Who knows? And he would go ahead and he would scout, like... When him and uh, I think it was the the screen the screenwriter for uh, For Your Eyes Only, they went to Corfu, and that's when he decided to film the Madrid sequence there as well, just because of the of the landscape. So he's resourceful. He knows how to use stuff, and he knows how to bring movies in on budget as well. That was a big thing with John Glenn as well. <laughs> I wanted to mention is that he oh, he he very rarely brought a film over budget. There you go. Yeah. So the the Broccoli's probably loved him on that basis as well. Sure. Yeah. Uh-huh. And Cully was getting old too, and he wanted someone that he could trust to take care of the job. So I'm not That's surprised that even though he point. wasn't a, yeah, he was getting older. Barbara was mm-hmm. still young. Michael G was kind of being groomed by that point to, to be the heir apparent, I guess you could say. Uh, so, sorry. I've got a couple of uh, favorite scenes from A View to a Kill. Um, I, mm. I love, I love the, I mean, there's features of the atmosphere, you know, in the setting that I love, but I, in terms of scenes, that kind of sequences, that Paris car chase really grows, oh, yeah. grows on me. Awesome. You know, Remy Julien. Yeah, of man. course, yeah, yeah, who we mentioned at the outset and, and a few moments ago. And, of course, he's behind the C2 car chase as well in, in yep. For Your Eyes Only. Yes. But I really did like the Paris car chase. You know, that the use oh, of location amazing. there and everything in and around the cities is just really, really sharp. And it holds up really well today, too. Yeah, it does. I mean, it's a, it's just, well, again, I think it's because there isn't a lot of, there's no, like, quote-unquote special effects or CGI. It's, like, real driving. That's right. I think, I think when you see movies, like, even if, like, a lot of things can be dated, but a lot of the time I find it's the CG or if it's, like, a green screen that Mm -hmm. is dated because, obviously, the quality of green screen and and CGI is obviously gets better and better and better. But if you look at, at director's, that want to go the extra mile, uh, pun intended, um, hmm. with, with car chases and stuff like that. If you do real car chases, you know, that's where, like, it's it, that's going to age very well. Sure. Yeah. Um, and if I, you're I, willing I, to do example, it, really. It, yeah, it, yeah. Well, that's the thing. If, yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. You, if you watch, like, a 4K or a 1080p, you know, 
uh, remastering of an old film and you have like an actual real explosion on film, it looks fantastic yeah. and will always trump CGI every, any day. Yep. Mm-hmm. And John um, Glenn was behind some enormous explosions, like what they did in Mexicali for License to Kill. Some of those explosions oh my are just out of control. Yeah. Well, they, oh, they weren't yeah. out of control, but they are—they're in, incredibly intense on the screen. Oh yeah, like the whole truck sequences on the highway and everything there—that was just incredible. A lot of pyrotechnics to master there for sure. He said that that was that was a sequence. A lot of singed eyebrows. He said uh-huh. that uh, a lot of them actually ended up wearing shorts, didn't they? And then burning all the hair. Yeah, he was, like, <laughs> well, they were yeah, pants it, to begin yeah. with, and then they turned into right. shorts. <laughs> <laughs> but Josh, am I right in saying that uh, Glenn kind of regarded that climax of License to Kill as the most involved that he had ever kind of been part of in terms of uh, you know all the explosions, the timing of the trucks, the stunt yeah. driving, and all of that. Yeah, absolutely. Glenn actually uh, said on the James Bond radio podcast, mm-hmm. he thinks License to Kill is the best film he's ever made. Wow. Wow. Like, I guess in terms of a objective, okay, critical culmination of, of skills, of, that type of yeah, thing. Yeah, I would say he probably had more fun with, uh, well, I'm sure it was probably a more film because you see like, they were chums, right? But yeah, saying, exactly. Yeah. The stunts in the pre-title of License to Kill are great, you know, Uh the, yes. the helicopter stuff yeah, and yeah. the airplane stuff and the, I, I love that and I really like the scene too where um, where the submersible comes up out of the water and, and you know yes he's and, just and there the, stabbing and at the cocaine like that's a really good the scene. cocaine that's yeah. a really good scene one thing about Glenn too is that even though like the the, the screenplays in the Glenn era they they really try to have a lot of more more characters and a lot more character motivation but I think sometimes Glenn's style kind, uh, kind of like hindered that a little bit and that's why I think movies like License to Kill like maybe needed something a little bit more than Glenn's style to tell the story properly. Because mm-hmm. License to Kill is a very strong character-based film. Yeah. It, it, you can compare it to, say, like, and many have, to, like, uh, Kurosawa's Yojimbo or A Fistful of Dollars, the uh, Sergio Leone version, how he's making the villain turn against all of his people, right? Mm-hmm. And it, it's a lot more of a, of a more protracted revenge story than a straightforward Bond film. And... Uh, so I can kind of see again while it was a much deeper piece for John Glenn to get involved in compared to the other Bond films as well. Would you say then, guys, that <clears throat> I mean, I, I'm I'm thinking back to our, our reviews. Would you say that The Living Daylights is your favorite Glenn film? Uh, I'm tied with Free Eyes uh, Only yeah. and Living Daylights. Yeah, like so. The Living Daylights, I think, is and I, I I think it's a fantastic Cold War film. Again. With The Living Daylights, um, because it's Dalton, it's a little more serious, and it's straight ahead, and it's it's a really good, uh, well-made, edited action uh, spy thriller. Yeah. Fear Eyes Only, in, in, in case, is a little more, like, you know, there's a little more humor, there's a little more, uh, you know, a little more uh, romance. I, I honestly think that Fear Eyes Only is going to make it into my, my, if we do another sort of top fiver. Hmm. Top ten, it's gonna make it in there because like I, I really enjoyed it this most recent time that I had watched it, and I, I think it's one of his strongest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I do too. I love the Living Daylights, but I do find that it, that it does. I think the pacing it seems a little long, yeah. um, and I think that's John Glenn just a bit lingering on location a little bit. Whether he's in Vienna, which which you can tell he's in love with, or whether he's in like filming Morocco, for example, like he really loves those sequences. Mm-hmm. So you can tell that he kind of gets lost in his in his. He, he lingers a little bit in his movies too, sometimes yeah. in that way. Uh, but I found with I find Free Rise Only is just it's so rewatchable. Yeah. 
one of the reasons, Josh, I think you're right that it's so rewatchable is because it's it's negotiation of this sort of tripartite villain structure is is more comfortable and it's a little more easily unwrapped. Whereas the Living Daylights, it's it's not obvious how Whitaker works into things until really up until the end, you know, like up until that scene where yeah, yeah. Uh, Yorkie gets the phone call at his yeah. estate or whatever. Yeah. Uh, you're not really sure of what's happening with Whitaker. And I feel like that's, that's a, a complication to the story that keeps him from being as straight ahead as maybe he could be. You know? Here's a hot take. Yeah. Was Necros actually like a villain or is he a freedom fighter who was doing what he did to make money for his resistance group? Because he mentions that he's part of some international mm-hmm. resistance group. So he's not a communist. So like what what group is he a part of? Is he like is he part of like because he sounds like he could be a European, obviously. Yeah. So or German maybe even. So maybe he's like part of like uh Biter Meinhof or or something like that. Like who well, knows? But I, you know, it's a good question you raised. But the way the way he walked question. into that kitchen and killed the the, the chef, oh, yeah. uh, the butcher, like that, I think is a villain. Like okay. he didn't. Yeah. He oh didn't yeah. Oh, to, he's a villain, of course. But he yeah. didn't need to kill that guy. What I mean is, he didn't oh, need to kill that guy to execute what no. what his organization wanted. If indeed he was bloody yanks. But what I think it shows though is that <laughs> what he is, he's like he's a hitman, and he knows like he's like, look, I don't need to kill this guy, but just so I basically cover my tracks so i have underline the, less, the job we underline the job but also just like look i need to get to point a to b if there's anyone in my way i need to like make sure you know just i'm just gonna sort of like mm-hmm. burn the path to get there <laughs> and yeah he, i'm gonna do it you know like and other people might just be like i'm just gonna punch him knock him out uh, put him in a sleeper hole and put him in the corner, but he's like, forget it. I'm just going to kill you. Okay. Get going. So. <laughs> I was going to say, Scott, so your favorite uh, Glenn moment, I, I guess, is the CV chase, I'm assuming? No, 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 no. That's that's down on my list. My favorite Glenn moment is the uh, the cargo plane fight between Dalton's oh, Bond and yeah. Necros. I just yeah. think that's remarkable. It's a great it combination of of sort yes. of uh, inset shots and location shots, and and even the way that Glenn explained, uh, as I recently listened to the director commentary on that, the way he explained kind of the. Um, the run up to it, how you weren't allowed on the runway to actually run up into a moving C-130 cargo. You know, you had to do different things. Uh, and yes. so they had to film different ways and all of the little points that made that scene come together. And I think that the choreography of, of that and, and the way it was captured just with the, the mountains, you know, the cinematography of the scene, the action yeah. of it, it, the editing of that scene too, from going, you know, it, it, it's one of, I think I remember us talking about this, that the 80s had an awful lot of ticking clocks, right, in, in oh, the action yes. films. But this is one that really does create tension. And when oh, I yeah. watch it, I get another new thing out of it. Um, mm-hmm. I really, really like that scene. So I think that's probably my favorite. I'm, I'm also really partial to the um, um, to the to the ski chaser for your eyes only. I think it's really fun, and the keel hauling oh, has that great yeah. mixture as well. Say, of yeah, the, the keel hauling, yeah, the ski chase, and uh, and moreover, like the the bobsled when they were on the bobsled part. That, that, yeah, that, yeah, that, totally. That, yep. that part because the, there's a couple of ski chases, if you will. That's right. Yeah, but, there uh, there are yeah, through the woods and through the, the slopes. Yeah. Chase like, like mm. he he jumps off. And, like, oh. It's funny seeing picturing like Charles dance on skis, punching <laughs> James Bond in the gut in the middle of, of like a of a high yeah. jump. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. What do you guys What do you guys think of of this? Now I I don't know that it, it's quite as um, kind of instrumental to the to the canon, but I feel like 
Bond and Pushkin in The Living Daylights, where they kind of, you know, the, the way Bond approaches that and the way he uses the setting, including... I the love that sequence. Sort of, I love that sequence too, Josh. And for me, it's up there with, with Connery and Dr. No, where he, yes. you know, he kind of hides out and he, he shoots and he tells, uh, you've you've had your six, right? Or whatever it is yeah, that he says. Yeah. Like, I love that scene. And, and I think Dalton is fantastic. I think it's really well directed. I feel it's tight. It's tense. I think that's one yeah. of the greatest Davis kind is of great, is great in that drama movie too. moments. Yeah. yeah. The thing with Glenn is like we say that he's not an actor's like well I, I think he's not like an he doesn't care about the big like scene chewing moments for his actors you know like that's not yeah. his priority he, he wants to create good tell a story and if you get a good acting sequence that tells a story then Glenn's all for it 100% exactly. right yeah, totally and that sequence in particular to me is is, is like uh, is an example of mm-hmm. that. Uh, just how they also they set up the whole storyline, and I really like the scene when in the Living Daylights when Pushkin first goes to see Whitaker, and how well like the camera picks up like John Rhys Davies' character's utter contempt for Whitaker in that sequence. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I actually really liked it where uh, he basically just was like, "Yeah, so didn't you get kicked out of West Point?" He's like, "Shut up <laughs> for like, cheating." Well, yeah, and uh, he was just like, "Look at me, I, you know." Look at me, I'm uh, I'm so fancy, I make my own uniforms. It's like half like American, <laughs> half like Soviet with like the patches and like if you know, he's got he's got his own little private army, but because he, he can't be in a he can't be in a real army, so he's in charge of his own little private bullshit army. Yeah. Uh, it was funny. Okay guys, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask a tough question. We've talked about some scenes that we like. We've talked about different films and obviously the style, this sort of narrative first propulsive informed by editing drive that Glenn did, you know, with his mm-hmm. with his style and, and his career within Bond. Here's my question for you, okay? Um, and I'm going to put myself on the spot as well as you. You got one John Glenn film that you can take and only one to represent the best of his work as a James Bond director. What's it going to be? Mm. Oh, man sucks why'd you do that um, i did it because i have to <laughs> no that's fine yeah. i see i'm leaning towards fry fear eyes only but at the same mm-hmm. time i feel like the living daylights be- uh, like honestly i'm uh, six one way half a dozen the other because like there's so many amazing scenes it's like the you know like well you were saying the action scenes in the living daylights are amazing mm-hmm. uh, and i i just really like dalton and, and how everything flows in that film uh, but I, 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 I think I might go with Fear Eyes only for myself if I was going to take one. Okay, right, Josh. Mm, that is a tough one for sure. The, I, I think in terms of like, I, in terms of like, as, as I mentioned earlier, like I love the Living Daylights, but I, I do find that the pacing is going to be a little stretched out a little bit. And mm. while I, I like the ambition of Timothy Dalton uh, portrayal of Bond in that film. Mm. Uh, I find that *The Daylights* is a is a is very can be very thrilling and yes. also very cerebral Bond yes. film, and *Fear Eyes* only has those moments as well. But one thing *Fear Eyes* only has to me that *The Living Daylights* kind of lacks a little bit is a sense of escapism and fun. Yeah. I guess compared to like *The Living Daylights*, this is the Roger Moore so, aspect. Yeah, and that's it's not what just Jeff that said too. Yeah, I agree with yeah. that. I, I think in terms of, of everything that like Glenn was able to do deftly, including handling humor as well, that was showing about I think his mastery of of the of the James Bond film or or of being able to handle comedy, handle drama, handle action, yeah. handle handle slower sequences. 
but necessary sequences, obviously, because it's John Glenn. I would say Free Rise Only would be my pick for like uh, emblematic of his career, in my opinion. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. best first out of the gate was the one that's best for Bond. Well, that's my favorite of the John Glenn ones. I have to say, Free Rise Only is my favorite. But I, I oh. fully acknowledge that the Living Daylights is is really close. But you know what, yeah. guys? I'm gonna do something. I'm going to do something different. I'm I'm sorry, but I'm going to do something different because it's not my favorite. I didn't ask what our favorites were, right? I asked no, which one would we take to represent the yeah. Bond. And I'm taking Octopussy because of the reasons you guys said. It's got the action. It's got the really informed stunt sequences, you know, with the train stuff. It's got yeah. the circus, mm-hmm. the realism, yep. and the verisimilitude that Josh was hinting at. It's got... Yes, uh, verisimilitude. Great, That's the word I was... Yeah. A great John Barry score. It's got Roger yep. Moore humor, but Roger Moore serious. And it's also got the wheelhouse of an older Bond where you're not... Not climbing rocks, but you're at an auction house. I, I think yeah. there's something. Yeah. It's not my favorite, right? It's not my favorite. I don't put no. it on as much, but I really like it. And I think that there's something in there that works for for Roger, that works for the director, that works for the story. I'm going there, even though it's not my favorite. I think that's the one that best represents. That's a good but point. I would say that, yeah, the way you're describing that, I mean, uh, I would say like Octopussy <laughs> is kind of like a. James Bond fruitcake, where it's got all the little... <laughs> if you think of all the it's ingredients, it's packed <laughs> yeah. into it. Yeah, exactly. It's all packed nice. in there in, in one very interesting, mm-hmm. colorful, uh, and unique package. <laughs> if you will. Uh, Unwrap it once a, a year. year. Unwrap it once yeah, a year. Yeah, once a year. The truth <laughs> is, though, that neither one of the Glenn films is bad. And no. we, we, we did rip out a little bit of uh, View to a Kill when we watched it. But it that's got... I mean, I've watched all of these in recent... In preparation for the show, same as you guys did. I do like it. I mean, it's they're all good films. John Glenn doesn't make a bad movie in the action, in no. the action no, world. He, he definitely does not. They're just... Uh, they're just, you know... They're all their own little thing. But... Exactly. Um, I, I, if I had to leave one behind, I would probably leave behind A View like to a Kill. kill. No, I think, kill, yeah. I think, yeah, because I, I think I would probably leave behind a view to a kill just yeah. because License to Kill has, I feel it's got a lot more color and in terms of like, mm. in terms of things to look at. And Jeff, you got some responsibility in, in swaying me on this because <laughs> you really championed, um, you really championed Pam Bouvier's character for mm. me as played by yes. Carrie Lowell. And I watched her recently and you know what? You and Josh are right. Like the script lets her down. Um, not like it let uh, your other championed female character oh, down. Oh, don't even. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I won't go there. I won't go there. But it, it did let her down a bit. And I, th- I think I'd leave a view to a kill behind <laughs> because Roger Moore's not great in it. He's not having as much fun as I would like him a to. A bit long it. in the tooth, as he was saying. Oh, tusks. Isn't that what the reviewer said? He has tusks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I, I think I might I might leave a view, a view to a kill behind, but... Uh, I would agree to be you. fair, if you take out Zorin and Mayday from a view to a kill mm-hmm. and San Francisco, like, <laughs> I, I'm not a huge view to a kill fan, to be honest with you. Yeah. Yeah. Fair yeah. enough. Yeah. Fair enough. And listen, do, do you guys count, <clears throat> do you count Roger Moore with the Rolls Royce in the lake as a water scene? Because if you do... If you count that as like a Bond underwater scene, that is a that is a good Glenn sequence, by the way. Is it is, is a good Glenn the, sequence, uh, which is why I ask because the horse the horse chase builds up to that sequence. Like, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's uh, a, okay. it's a, good. Yeah. It's fair uh, enough. Yeah. Then that in that it's case, a good water sequence. Four four of Glenn's five films involve some underwater or submersible in some point. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, yeah he wasn't in underwater in the Living Daylights. I just realized that he was never underwater in the that's Living right. Daylights. He wasn't. Unless you count him being on the yacht with the girl at the beginning of the uh, <laughs> well, after Gibraltar, but he didn't go in the water. <laughs> <sighs> true, true. That's true. He, on, he didn't go he in the water. Deck. Yeah. 
Well, we don't know the that only, he did. And the other water scene, I guess, would be when... On the lake? <laughs> well, the frozen lake when he cuts the hole. Uh, that's yeah, true, that too. Was... Yeah, that's the other <laughs> pseudo-water. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I, that's a fun. That's a, that's a great scene, I too. Love the, the ice I love the Black scene. Aston Martin. Ooh. Oh, the Vanquish, oh. yeah. Oh, yeah. That's, mm. that that's awesome. coming back in uh, No Time to Die, hey? Awesome. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it is. Whenever that movie comes out. <laughs> 2035. Pretty much. <laughs> Um, so, uh, yeah, so just going over some Glenn trademarks. So, yeah, the pigeons. Glenn said that he uses the pigeons in his movies a lot because he was startled by pigeons once. And, <laughs> and he just finds that, like, you know, it's just a fun thing to take the character yeah, sure, using the not? natural surroundings to put the character at, uh, not at ease, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. And he also used pigeons because they were cheap. That's right. Uh, so yeah. they could be found anywhere. They're all over the world. So oh, yeah, That's true, yeah. <laughs> They're fucking everywhere. Yeah. He said, like, oh, we're out of pigeons. Like, okay, just get that uh, same costume person. Yeah, I can go across the border, buy some, bring them back. <laughs> You'll also notice <laughs> that right. he has his own version of the uh, of the Willem scream. It's like a male scream that he has. Whenever you see like a, a male character, like a villain or a henchman, fall to their deaths, <laughs> they fall. But then it's like they have like this, <laughs> like a, it, it almost sounds like a terrified, like I'm throwing up as I'm falling to my death sound. And it's a lot better than the Willem scream, in my opinion. So Not to be confused with the Tarzan scream. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, Speak about moments of parody, right? But again, that's the screenplay. <laughs> uh, yeah, a little bit, a little bit. Uh, Fonzie did it better, though. <laughs> Moving forward, uh, and also he reused actors in his films as well. That was another thing that he did. A lot, a lot of, a lot of directors do, do that, of because course. But they know they're, they're, they know what they're getting. Like, that's it's exactly like, right. I yeah. can't picture like, like, well. I know that I can picture. I know that he's done this kind of role before, so I'm comfortable. I don't want to like, because depending on the undertaking, like this is a huge movie. This will make or break something. You're like, I trust this person. I've seen him in a similar mm-hmm. role, or I know they can do it. So why not go back to your your Rolodex of people that you're familiar with? Right? Absolutely, yeah. So just think of actors. So he, he reused in the film. So like, I know for example, the two knife throwing twins in uh, Octopussy. Octopussy. Oh yeah. He was a homic- He was at. He was. He was a, like a homicide or police detective at Lighter's place in in uh, the license in License to Kill. Uh, He's the guy yeah, that right says on. like, "Oh, it's probably a it's probably a chainsaw." And then Sharky says, "I know a shark bite when I see it." Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So that's it's, one of, it's, that's it's, either Mishka or Grishka. Mishka or Grishka. Yeah. Whoever that actor's name is. Yeah. Right. Okay. So there's him too. Now, as I mentioned, John Glenn's favorite Bond movie he worked on was uh, was Octopussy. But uh, can you guys guess who his favorite Bond girl is? Maude Adams, gotta be. Uh, you got it. Yeah, yeah. that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, yeah. I was just thinking of like um, the action sequences in The Living Daylights, and I, I like, I don't know, like, because we normally when you see action sequences in Bond, it's always Bond fighting someone. But I noticed that like um, in uh, The Living Daylights. When uh, Necros, who I'm going to forever now call Lactose because he's a killer milk, <laughs> uh, when he has that fight scene with the guy in the kitchen, it's not Bond. It's just him against like a, like a, another sort of like secret agent, another stuntman, right. basically. Another, yeah, and I like that. I like that because yeah. normally, and I it's funny because I don't know why it just clicked in the other night when I was watching. I'm like, man, also it's a badass, like really well edited scene and. And telling the story, telling a story. Yeah. Bond doesn't have to be there for the story to continue. No, but I, yeah. I also just like the fact that like this guy is also basically a secret agent, and he's you know he's got like martial arts. So it's it's it, it it's interesting where it's like oh normally you just see like Bond do this, but like yeah, there's other people that are similar to Bond 
they have you know martial arts training or self defense training and all this kind of stuff. So it was I find it a little bit refreshing to see a little bit of world building, uh, yeah. a little bit of world building, but also the fact that that lactose was actually getting his ass handed to him a couple of times. Like, it wasn't just one-sided where, like, you know, the guy will do a couple of punches and punch him in the chest, and he'll just, he like, dies, flex his, yeah. He'll yeah. flex his chest like he's, like, um, Drago, and just, like, I'm yeah. going to crush you now. Like, it was There's back a human element to it. Yeah. yeah. And so I thought that was actually quite refreshing and a bit unique for yeah, Bond right. films where you don't... Yeah. It's usually Bond versus one or two henchmen instead of, like, henchmen versus, like, sort of, like, a... Like a, almost like an NPC, if you will, if doing gamer terms. Yeah. Uh, and I thought it was one. It was a really good scene. It was it was a good length, lots of action, and also the injuries they got were like, oh, it was nasty. Like you know, burning their faces and all that. Kind of, and just the use, it felt like you're watching like a like a Bourne movie. To be honest with you, just sort of yeah. Ha- and it was just all sort of just going right at it, like throwing things. And I just so I really liked that scene. I also thought it was very well edited. Now, I know he didn't necessarily edit the scene, but you can see, like, coming from an editor standpoint, I know that mm-hmm, he probably mm-hmm. was very, very hands-on for that. I, yeah. I just really enjoyed that scene. One thing that Glenn does really well, too, I found, especially in, 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 in I think he shows the espionage, like, it, it, or agencies, whether it's MI6 or uh, CIA, like, he shows them quite competent in yep. his films. I agree. And um, I'm going to once again say that, like, I think that I just realized watching *The Living Daylights* again that uh, John Terry playing Felix Leiter, he has a Texas accent as well. So that again reaffirms my uh, opinion that John Terry is probably one of the best Felix Leiters. And I feel <laughs> that if he was in *License to Kill* okay, instead of Davis okay. Hedison, I think John Terry could have made that a lot better, in my opinion. And it also the continuity would have been way better for his for his yeah, uh, for his portrayal. Like if he was in *License to Kill* and went through what he did, and then he went back and watched *The Living Daylights*, you'd probably have a better opinion. <laughs> of like the smart because he had a small scene too in that movie and uh i don't know i just found him very believable as if he looks lighter in the living daylights you know maybe it didn't have like you know the the, the two girls i mean that, that yeah. might have made him more a bit cheesy yeah i like i like the fact that he was like you know lowing lying low on the on the yacht you know monitoring stuff looking like a typical american yachtsman or something like that like I don't know, it was a good cover i, I did kind of like the two girls just because it's like lighter knows bond so he's like, yeah. uh, I think I'll, I'll entice him with a couple of girls in a in a in a convertible. That'll get him. <laughs> the dialogue though doesn't, I think, failed Felix Leiter in that sequence too because the first thing he says is, "What are you trying to do? Start World War Three? And then he says afterwards, "You mean this is a put up job?" Like he basically comes like an exposition bot essentially to remind the audience. Whereas compare that to you know like uh, Jeffrey Wright in. Um, uh, you know, in the Craig films, and the Felix Slater would just mm-hmm. be able to re- uh, respond to what to figure what's going on just through a, a look in his eyes. You know what I mean, yeah, or or a yeah. frown. You know what I mean. So yeah. I think the dialogue failed John Terry in, in those se- in that sequence, in my opinion. Yeah. You make also you make a good case. I didn't like his hair. <laughs> yeah, I didn't. I didn't like much of what he had to offer, but I, I appreciate that I'm alone in that camp. <laughs> and the Texas accent is also key to Felix Slater as well. So there you go. Yeah, um, it is. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, my favorite Glenn moment, I mm-hmm. would say, and I'm thinking of all of them, uh, I agree with you, Scott. Like, to me, like, of all of them, the pick, like, 
the whole sequence on the Hercules, even the moment when they dropped the bomb to to help the Afghanis out mm-hmm. down below. That's great. And and also the sequence too when the plane's about to crash and the whole thing about getting on the jeep and inco- that's just thrilling. Oh, yeah. That's that, that whole sequence that's is so well I done. Really liked it. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And you can see yeah. I love Dalton's performance in that scene too because he looks at Kara as she's driving the jeep and he's like, oh, for fuck's <laughs> sake! Like, you I can love see that. it in his eyes. He's like, oh, Jesus. <laughs> Really? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. really? Okay. Yeah, like, anyway. your cello? I bet when, he's, when he's waiting, when he's oh, waiting man, in the fun. car for the cello? Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. they, they shove it, he's like, get in there. Like, you know, mm, they're trying know, to shove I it know. in the car, and he's like... Yeah, honestly, I actually really liked how that... That was actually funny, in the sense where, like, he's like, uh, no, we're not getting the cello. The next shot. He's, like, sitting there like, <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. If if we could draw a line under this episode then and, and maybe bring it to a close, I think we'd all agree that John Glenn's, you know, tenure as a director for Bond wasn't just deserved as his cut and teeth history that you've laid out for us kind of mm-hmm. would suggest, but it's, it's also quite effective. It, it gave Cubby Broccoli the confidence to know that as he's getting older and, you know, he's changing of the guards with respect to Michael and Barbara taking over, that the series is in very good hands. He's mm-hmm. happy with that. Glenn delivers action first, you know, actor second type uh, entertainment, which is probably why Roger Moore got along so well with him. You know, he wasn't he, he wasn't too demanding on the principal. Yes. And, and I guess he also had um, just overall uh, a really, really good run full of, full of, full of the, that sort of bond, trifle that jeff was talking about you know you got a little bit of everything in his movies that are going to give you even if you love them or not you're going to be entertained yeah man i totally agree john glenn to me is like the reason why i think i think he's what i love about the bond films mm-hmm. and the fact that he started with honor Madge's secret service just is so perfect yeah, in, in, in in that in that sense yeah, and then this boy who loved yeah. me chase sequence and yeah. then of course the films did in the 80s and he did the dalton era as well which is really important to me because i think we wouldn't have had like casino royale or the or skyfall yeah. without mm-hmm. john glenn as you said cutting his teeth yeah. in the 80s yeah. i right. think i think in a way even well, though brosnan came in with golden eye there was the john glenn effect in that film as well I think they kind of went back to the older style uh, in the last three Brosnan films a little bit, in my opinion, or a mix of both, I guess you could say, mm-hmm. uh, in those sense, a bit of a potpourri in, in a way. But I think the legacy of John Glenn has fixed its stamp on the Bond franchise as a whole, and I, and I think it still carries to this day, in my opinion. I would agree. And I just to add to what Josh is saying, I think also uh, it's very important because when he had those those consecutive Bond films in the 80s, which the 80s was known for action films and and also just for the like the the political climate all that kind of stuff so it, it was a very very important time for action films and, and cold war and, and john glenn and how he how he made these films at the time were very important to the film industry and for the bonds and for yes. uh, the, the for the james bond films but also for the james bond character like it's very important and the james bond would not be what it is today if it wasn't for the consecutive home runs that he mm-hmm. hit with those films and, and how he came about it, I think. So it's very, he's very, very important. Uh, a predictable a and dependable deliverer. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. exactly. And, and it's Jeff, interesting uh, to now... see what, what would have happened had had that third Dalton film, Property of a Lady, actually come into fruition. Oh, it would have been yeah. really neat to see how Dalton's third outing under a potential Glenn director would have, you know, would have been. On the podcast, they ask him, you know, like, would Living Daylights have been the same if Pierce Brosnan had 
been signed on to play Bond after View to a Kill. Mm-hmm. And Glenn says that essentially, yeah, like 100%, like Living Daylights would have been the exact same film, but with Pierce Bros and his Bond. Like there was really no changes, yeah. There might have been one or two or, or two changes, maybe a different chemistry, maybe between him and the lead actress, mm-hmm. maybe, but Marion Dabo, but really it would, it would have been pretty much the same. And that's a um, testament to his story, most important focus and radar, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. Like, even the sequence, like, for your, the, they had planned to cast a new Bond back in 1980 uh, when they were getting a Free Your Eyes Only ready. And so that whole sequence with Bond at the at Teresa's grave prior to, you know, the Blofeld kidnapping, or, sorry, not Blofeld kidnapping mm-hmm. sequence, that was supposed to be another Bond actor, and that was a way of introducing Bond to a new audience. But um, Glenn also said that he wanted to keep the continuity of the series as well. So that's why in Free Your Eyes Only, you know, you have that moment of Teresa or even the, the mention of him being married in License to Kill, which is also great foreshadowing to what happens to Felix and Della, of course. Yes. So it's very similar in that way. And before we go, though, I, yeah, get back to what I was going to ask you, Jeff, because both Scott and I have, have designated what our favorite John Glenn moments, moment is. What is your favorite John Glenn moment? Well, to be honest, I was kind of going back. Like, I really like uh, this the bobsled ski chase in Free Your Eyes Only. But after watching The Living Daylights, I got to go with the Afghanistan because that's just, like, mm. amazing. Like, the the scene, you know, the, the, the C-130. I mean, yeah. I mean, that's just... It's just great, that isn't whole, it? It's just amazing. Um, it's like the uh, alchemy I, of the I, music I, and the filming. Yeah. And it's, it's just so like, fantastic. That's more actioning, like, like, you know, guys' night, like, I got a pizza, I got a beer. But I feel like watching for for your eyes only the ski bob, the, the bobsled like ski chase, if you will, mm-hmm. like I, that one I feel is a little more like it's fancier. Like I would have like a martini and caviar, and watch that scene and, and enjoy that a little bit more, just because, like you know what I mean. But if I'm gonna choose one because of sort of what's at stake and just sort of the grandiose, you know, editing, editing filmmaking, all that kind of stuff that comes work. together, I guess I would yeah. say the Afghanistan that that scene. And Barry's music score on I mean, the top music, of all yeah, everything. Well. Like, yeah. That's so. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna say that scene. Yeah. All right. Well, guys, we point oh two. I, I was. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, one last thing, just in terms of uh, like of how you know guns are really used and and whatnot. Not that I know all about guns or anything, <laughs> but I did like how Bond was firing the AK-47 oh, yeah. in short bursts yep. at, when, mm-hmm. when he's going to the Hercules. Yep. Like mm-hmm. he wasn't like you I know doing this, the, the Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, like uh, just yeah, like the commando thing. Like, yeah, yeah. He, he 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 was like he was conserving his ammunition, and I, I found that realism. And he ran out of bullets. Too. That's like, also nice to see. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> That's right. He had to recharge. Yeah, he had to reload. Yeah. yeah. When the when when the, when the plot calls for it, anyway. There you go. Yeah. yeah. Lots of little touches like that. I'm sure we could have found. Yes. You know, and, what were you saying, Scott? Uh, I think you were. Sorry, you... I, I was just going to wrap up. I was just going to wrap oh. up. I was oh gonna, yeah. Gosh, gosh, that. I, 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 yeah. That bit. Yeah. I was just going <laughs> to say. I think. I think we've done. We've done a good service here then to uh, so. to John. John Glenn's legacy. And again, this is just a whistle stop tour through his stuff, but we hope you've enjoyed uh, coming along with us. And you know, whenever you start the engine up after uh, after. The car has been sitting in the drive for a while, and uh, we're going to have we're going to have a bit of you know a bit of kickback. Remy we Julian get over. style. Yeah. That's right. Car so chase. it's it's been a it's been a good restart. I think this was a great topic to do for a welcome back episode. I think so too. Yes. 
it's great fun getting back together and I'm so excited about the season um, we've got like we said at the outset really good ideas and uh, well we think anyway fun episodes for uh, for, for all of you guys listening and, and thank you very much for, for tuning in and, and checking us out and uh, staying supportive of the show it's awesome and yeah like Josh was saying check out Tom and Chris's interview with John Glenn on James yeah. Bond Radio it's really really good stuff and you can get a couple of other podcast uh, interviews that John Glenn has done where he talks more broadly about his experience in film and stuff but if it's if it's the Bond films that you're interested in check out our earlier reviews of Glenn's films and uh, our next episode gents is, is going to be really interesting because we're going to get into this yeah. Bond redux. We're, we, we've each selected or we're going to select one of the Bond films to go back and do uh, a live watch along with. And it's going to be a bit of negotiating with respect to time zones and uh, kids to sleep and, and, and everything else in a lockdown where we can't really <laughs> leave our house. But we're going to do it and it's going to be great fun. So our next episode uh, is going to be a, a watch along and uh, commentary. So the Bond by Numbers hosts are going to take you through their feelings of the films. Uh, at least three of them. And Josh, Josh, Jeff and I decided before the show that because you put in the work with John Glenn, you're going to get the first choice of films. So you don't have to reveal it now. We yeah. can do that off air and we can share online. That's my hands our, rubbing together like Mr. Yeah. Burns right now. Okay. I wonder what that right. was, but now I know. That's good. <laughs> yeah, I didn't want to know what that was. <laughs> That's okay. I now know it was safe and above the safe. table. So, yep. <clears throat> Excellent. Well, that, I wasn't tubing or, 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 or okay, whatever the expression yeah. is. <laughs> right. right. On that happy image, I think we'll say goodbye. And I, look, I, and I look forward, Josh, to whatever film you decide to, uh, to choose for our, our next episode. All right, boys. Take care, guys. Stay safe. Take care. Bye. Later.